Thank you for listening to audio from Gospel Community Church in Eugene, Oregon. For more information about our church or our Sunday services, please visit gccugene.org. It's, it's good to be back. There was about almost 30 of us that were gone this last week to man camp, and yeah, <laughs> and it was good. The reality is, is that I love getting away and spending time with uh, the men from our church, but the other reality is, is that I miss our church and I miss our whole family whenever I'm away. So it's always good for me to be back and it's good for me to be here and it's good for me to be with you guys. So I do, I, I love our church, I love our family. And so I wanna say this real quick in regard to man camp. I'm not gonna sit up here and talk about all the trophies and medals and championships and stuff like that we won, but I am going to say this, two things. One, Campbell Scortman wrestles for Sheldon and the, and the school that people love to hate is Roseburg, which is actually where I'm from because they have an awesome wrestling program, okay? And so he's, he said that he knows what it's like to hate, uh, be on the hating side against Roseburg, but now he also knows what it feels like to be Roseburg and to be amongst the hated. So, so GCC at man camp felt like Roseburg, uh, felt like the Roseburg people probably do to him. So real quick, I want to say this too, is that while we were away uh, enjoying ourselves at man camp, th- that was made possible because there were some ladies from GCC that, uh, that helped and that came and sacrificed their entire weekend to come and serve uh, the men at man camp. And so I, I just want to say that we have a card for you ladies. And, and I, I want to say thank you to Ingrid, to Katie, and to Kia. I don't know if any of you guys are here right now, but a big thanks to you guys for, for sacrificing, giving up your weekend to come over there and serve us. So yeah. I also want to say this as well, is that uh, man camp and all the details and all the arrangements was not put together by me. That was put together by Dylan Johnson. And so I'm thankful for him and for his investment there and for making that happen. So thank you, Dylan. And, and, it, and it goes to, uh, we've talked about this before. I get more applaud now than ever during a sermon. So it's, it's incredible. Is that the reality is, is that we just have a, a solid team too that works for GCC that, uh, that makes it possible for me to do my job as preaching and teaching the gospel. And so Osborne and Hunter, both of them as well, just play a major role in the work that gets done uh, that is oftentimes hidden to the average eye and that's unseen. And so I just want to thank all of them and say Jake Clausen stayed behind last week and he preached. And so I'm wearing a GCC shirt for man camp. We have some shirts left over if you want one. There's just a few left. They're 15 bucks. It's not a moneymaker for us. It's what we spent uh, on them. And so if you want to grab some, there's, they're literally piled up uh, over there. And so I just want to give this one though to Jake Clausen for preaching last week and making that sack. <laughs> Jake. <laughs> I'm not going to blow out my shoulder uh, before, so I'll, uh, I'll toss it there for you. So let's turn, if you would, in your Bibles to the book of Ecclesiastes. We're going to continue in our series called The Gospel Gives Meaning. Ecclesiastes, if you open one of the hardback Bibles around the room or softbacks, if you turn in the middle, you'll be in the book of Psalms. And if you hang a right from there, it'll be your second book over. We have just a few more weeks in the book of Ecclesiastes. We're in chapter 10 this morning. And we've titled this series, The Gospel Gives Meaning. The reason why we call it The Gospel Gives Meaning is because of this. Uh, There's this word that's used 38 times in the book of Ecclesiastes, and that Hebrew word is the word hevel. And that word actually doesn't mean meaningless. It actually means vanity. It means smoke and vapor. And so what's being communicated is this, is that all of life, this, this speaker, this person in this story or in this book is, is called the preacher. So in Hebrew, that's Koheleth. Koheleth means teacher or preacher. So there's this guy who's preaching and he's teaching and he's speaking and he's telling us 
all this stuff. But what he's saying over and over again is this word hevel. He says it, like I said, 38 times. He's saying that the world, that the world that we live in is like vanity. What he's saying, it's like smoke and vapor. As soon as you reach to grab a hold of something, it can slip through your fingertips just like that. And so he's communicating this over and over and over again. And we say the gospel gives meaning to this world of vanity. Why? Well, because the gospel is good news. And what the gospel does is it says, look, you can actually have something greater than what the world has to offer. You can have the one who created the world. And, and, and what, what the preacher's trying to draw us to and trying to show us is, is that if you are trying to find all of your worth and all of your meaning and all of your satisfaction, everything in life to complete you through a relationship, through a spouse, through a marriage, through a career, even through time and through all these things, it's going to keep slipping through your fingertips like smoke, smoke and vapor. He's trying to convey to us that you actually don't have the sort of control over life that you think you do because life is very frail and humanity is very frail. So what he's trying to say is instead of hanging on to the gifts, what we actually get to the gospel is a restored relationship to God, the gift giver. And he's saying that's where you can actually find true value and true meaning. So we say the gospel gives meaning to life. Then what we're understanding is this, is that what the gospel actually offers is the one who gives us true meaning and true worth and true satisfaction in life. And that's God. Zach Swine, a scholar and commentator on the book of Ecclesiastes says, if you're trying to read it through a real scholarly lens, you're going to miss it because it's extremely pastoral. He's just trying to ground us back. Someone else said he's trying to shock us back to reality. He's trying to awaken us. Why is that important? Because we live in a world that is flooded by a prosperity gospel. We live in a world that is flooded by a message that what God is meant to do is to combine you and your awesomeness to God and his awesomeness. And you guys can make this really awesome team and you guys can do awesome things together. That's not the message of the gospel though. And if you look at the way the apostles die, you would have to know that you're not promised this awesome cush life. In fact, life is very difficult. And that's what he's trying to say that following Christ doesn't mean you're just going to have this really cush laid back life. He's trying to jar you and say, look, this, this prosperity gospel, this stuff that's, that's, that, that's going out into our culture, that's just not a reality. The reality is, is that life is hard. It's filled with loss. It's filled with death. It's filled with things slipping through our fingertips like hevel. And so he's saying this, then, then what, is our, what is our great hope? What is our promise? The promise is this, is that God's unfailing love will never leave his children in the midst of anything that they're going through in this life on this earth. That's the promise that we have. This, this book is, 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 is in the piece that's called Wisdom Literature because it's given to us as a gift to show us what's actually wise. And I'll say this, just as to close out the intro of, of where we're going, is that this world was meant to make us homesick. And so our promise is not that we were going to have a better state of mind. Our promise is not in nostalgic things that we once had. He's, he's told us that in chapter seven. Our promise not, is not that we're going to have a spouse or better relationships or a better life. It, our promise is actually none of those things as he's trying to convey to us. Our promise is that we have God and that he doesn't leave us. And in a world that, that is just a mist, that's what it is. It's a mist what this world should do is make us homesick. When we, when, we, when we experience really good things, it should actually make us go, oh my goodness, heaven is going to be like this when heaven and earth collide, but infinitely better. 
when we experience really bad things, we go, that's right, because I'm, I'm not built for this world. I'm here for a short time. I'm a sojourner here, but eternity will have joy in Christ forevermore, and that will never end. It's meant to give us a tremendous amount of hope as we go through and navigate through this life. Today, if there's something I want you to walk away with and remember, it's, and I say this as pastorally and as gently as I can, but it's don't be a fool. Don't be a fool. It reminds me of Mr. T saying that when he says, I pity the fool. But I believe that what the author and what the preacher is trying to convey to us is what folly is. Let's pray. Fathers, we open your word, open our hearts, open our ears. I pray that we wouldn't be foolish to harden our hearts right now, that we wouldn't be foolish to not be sensitive to what you have for us, that we wouldn't listen for the person to our left or to our right, but we would listen for what you have for us. I pray this morning, Father, that you would speak through your spirit to us, that you would minister to us, that you would remind us the truth of who you are and what you've done in Christ. Remind us who we are. And call us, Father, to a life that reflects Christ to this world. In Jesus' name, amen. Chapter 10, verse 1, is a continuation from the the, the previous uh, chapter, chapter 9, verse 18, and even that whole section. And he ends the last chapter with, Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. And then he starts off chapter 10 with this. He says, Dead flies make the perfumer's ointment give off a stench, so a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. Right? I think that's self-explanatory, so we'll just move right on. I think the reality is, is none of this, also, I'll say this, is if you are brand new to Christianity and if you are investigating it or you are an atheist or agnostic or anything like that and you open up to Ecclesiastes 10, I think it's just going to be really confusing for you. Because you have to understand what its role is inside of the whole book and inside of the whole Bible. But what chapter 10 is, is it's filled with these Proverbs. And it almost seems like these Proverbs kind of jump around, but they're actually not. They're very strategic in how they're placed. But what these sayings are meant to do is, I I believe specifically here, is he's trying to introduce us to folly. The wisest thing he could do is say, know what folly is. And then you'll know what wisdom is, or here's what wisdom is. Let me contrast that with folly. So I believe that the preacher is trying to say, here's what's folly. Here's what fools do so we can know ultimately what, what, what is wise. So verse one is confusing because you don't know what's going on. Just dead flies make the perfumer's ointment give off a stench. So what does this mean? Well, I believe he's setting up what this chapter is about. I believe that he's explaining where we're going and I believe that what he's saying is he's saying little sayings like they, uh, that, that, that Paul said in the, in, the, in the New Testament. It should sound familiar, but a little bit of leaven leavens the whole lump, right? Paul said that. I also think that what verse 1 conveys is this, is that you can, you can as much as you want inside of this world, you can spend your entire life creating a career, a business. You can spend your entire life focusing on school and education. You can spend your entire life trying to build wealth or do something like that. You can protect it. You can even lock it inside of a house behind locked doors. You can do all of this stuff. But at the end of the day, you forgot to take into account really small things like flies. Because ointment was a difficult process to make. It would have taken a long time. And maybe he had it locked in a secure place. But he just forgot about something small and simple like flies. And so the flies got in there and then it was destroyed. What he's saying is it only takes just a small, just a really little amount of evil to actually destroy something. 
don't believe it takes a tremendous amount of foolishness. I don't believe you have to be a huge fool and do widely foolish things. I believe that it always starts small. And I believe he's going to introduce us in these passages to two types of fools. Because Paul does as well. When Paul talks about a little bit of leaven that leavens a whole lump, he's talking about folly. He's talking about sin. He's talking about foolishness. And I believe that he's doing the same thing here. He's going to say that it only takes a little bit of this to outweigh wisdom and honor. I've seen that. The first slide is up on the screen. Is actually Paul addressing the, the, the first type of fool. It's from 1 Corinthians 5. And Paul says, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that... A little leaven leavens the whole lump. Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. What's going on in Corinthians is this, is that there's this perverse form of sexual immorality that's going on where it appears that a man is dating uh, or, or having sex with, with his stepmom. And, and so the, the first type of leaven where, where Paul's saying, hey, get the leaven out of there. It'll go through the whole lump. It'll destroy it is the first type of fool that I believe the preacher is introducing us to in Ecclesiastes is just the downright flat out fool. That's really easy to spot and identify through his actions. Okay. And it's the type of foolishness that just looks like just straight up rebellion. It's the type of person that just is, is just black and white going against whatever God has laid out for them to do and, and doing their own thing. It, it's, it's a very easy fool to spot. Verse two even tells us that, that a wise man's heart inclines him to the right, but a fool's heart to the left. The Latin word sinister means actually left hand, which actually means evil. And so what, what, what he's just simply saying here is, is, is a wise man, his heart is going to lead him the right way, but a fool is going to constantly lead him the wrong way. Verse three, even when a fool walks on the road, he lacks sense. And he says to everyone that he is a fool. What's the picture here? There is a man that is so foolish that he is blind to his own foolishness. And what would make us a fool right now is to hear the word of God and then say, that's probably not for me, but I know someone else who it's probably for. This is, this is the guy. What the picture is, is he's on the wrong side of the road. This is like you driving down a, a one way, the wrong direction, though everyone else is driving the right direction and you're driving the wrong direction. You're like a bunch of idiots out here. None of these people know what they're doing. Like they're all going the wrong direction. And, and, and then you just tell everyone at work, you're like, man, I was driving to work this morning and, and, and the world is just filled with morons. And, and he's saying that that's, it, it's, it's as plain as day in a sense to everyone else to see someone that's doing something so foolish, but for them, they're just like, oh yeah, no, I know what I'm doing. It makes sense. What I'm doing is okay. In fact, Derek Kinder would say, scholar, is that, the fool is the person who knows everything and you don't need to tell them anything. Just ask them about it. What makes someone foolish? I think it's this simple. What makes you foolish is to reject Jesus Christ. And so if the first type of fool is just a flat out rejection of God and of Jesus Christ, it would be as simple as this. It would say, God, I love that you provided your son. And I love that you provide forgiveness through the cross and through the finished uh, work of Jesus Christ. But what I don't believe is that you and that Jesus Christ can actually fill the deep, deepest longings of my heart and of my soul. I don't believe that you can satisfy me. And so I know what your word says, but I'm going to do my own thing anyways. 
And I would say that that person who, who does that is, is, is acting foolish, that they are being a fool because what they are doing is, they are, is, is they're outright rejecting Jesus by saying, you cannot be enough. I need whatever else this is in my life to just satisfy me. In a sense, you've looked at God and looked at God's word and said, nah, I'm good. Same thing that Eden, or, 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 or that the same thing that happened in Eden is, is, is continuing to happen now. Back in the garden of the beginning of the Bible, they said, thanks for the tip, God, but, but we're good. Because what we actually view it as is this, is that if there's something in life that our emotions tell us that we want, then it must be a bad God restricting us from having it. And, and so in the same sense, it would be like positioning yourself on a cliff and going, you know what? I'm tired of being restricted to gravity. It's time that I fly. I'm going for it. Or it's like walking into the ocean and saying, I'm tired of living on land and these restrictions that have been placed on my life. I'm going to go swim. I'm going to live in the bottom of the ocean. We would say those things, those restrictions that are on your life are a good thing that are actually meant to protect you. But it's like looking at those things and going, I'm just going to do the opposite. You know that I've never seen, I've never seen someone just completely walk into straight, I mean, utter foolishness that it always starts with a little bit the baby steps. I talked to a man at man camp who had been married for 25 years and his, and his marriage is falling apart. And it started with something very small. That's why we call them gateway drugs. Typically people make their way into doing the hard stuff. And typically the, the, the fool will say, no, thanks, God, I'm going to do my own thing. And what that'll do is it calluses the heart. And then what our life continues to reflect is we say, no, thanks, God, I'm going to do my own thing. And so rebellion. And you might say, I'm not a fool, but I would say any command that God gives and you say no thanks to would, would put you in the first category. Flip, let's try this one. Philippians 2.14 says, do all that you do without complaining or arguing. Do everything you do in life without complaining or arguing. You're like, man, I, I can't get out of bed without complaining. <laughs> right? When God's word says stuff like, hey, don't get drunk. Have you met a person on the side of a toilet that goes, this was worth it? <laughs> Good choice. Maybe God's word knows what he's talking about. When we choose to just do our own thing, even though God's word has explicitly told us to do something else, believe it saying that we're screaming out, I'm a fool, look at me, driving down the wrong way on a, on a one way. And then verse four says this, if the anger of the ruler rises against you, do not leave your place for calmness will lay great offense to rest. What's this mean? That for the fool, you need to know when to just be quiet. <laughs> Because oftentimes we fight with our spouses and we fight with people and we argue about stuff or we're not talked to in a way that we like to by our boss or by our coworkers and stuff like that. And then so what we're actually fighting for and what's at stake is our own pride. And then so we flare up and, 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 and let stuff come out because the last thing I would want someone to do is to, is, is to come against the image that I've set up for myself. And so we lash out. And what he's saying is actually, did you know that calmness can just lay a lot of offenses to rest? What's really at stake? Are you fighting for something like David was because people are defying the God of Israel or are you fighting for your own kingdom? And oftentimes we'd probably say it's because we're fighting for our own kingdom. Most arguments, if we were being honest that we get into, it's because we want to prove our point and because we want to be right. And what he's saying is actually, did you know, just being calm and closing our mouths, Christ did that a lot. Read the gospels. I mean, he was attacked 
Why did he not need to always give a response back? He was a child of God, secure and satisfied in being a child of God. So what do we say with, sex, with this first section? It would say that, that he's talking to the just outright fool, someone who's just a loud mouth and, and who knows everything, but yet he can't find his way to the top of an escalator. I have two daughters, and I'll give you two examples of what this practically looks like from yesterday. My youngest is more like me, and my oldest is more like my wife. And what I mean by that is I struggle with rules, and I struggle with authority. I've seen it abused, and so I, have, I, have, I, have a big, I just have a big struggle with it. And my youngest drives me nuts because she does not like rules either. And so she picks up a thing with her toy shovel yesterday of dirt, and she's going to throw it over to where I'm working on the yard where I just don't want it. It's not that big of a deal. I just don't want it there. And I'm like, Brooksy, don't do that. And she looks at me and goes to dump it over, and, a, and the wind was blowing. So like she lifted it up and dumped it, and the dirt just went whoosh right in her face. And she's crying. <laughs> I'm laughing because I'm partially sick, and in that moment, I was like, yes, good. <laughs> good. That's why I'm not God. I'm not a good, good father. That's why we sing the song about God. But I'm like, that's, that's, that's what foolishness looks like, is, is, is someone older and wiser than you telling you, don't do that. And then you do it anyways, and then all the dirt comes and hits you in the face. It's why the younger generation should actually maybe listen to our older generation, but it's why all of us should listen to God's word and what God's word is telling us. My older daughter, again, we're driving yesterday. Yesterday was a rough day. Um, my wife was gone, and uh, I'm here today. And so we're, we're driving, and we're, we're playing I Spy with My Two Eyes. And uh, my, my oldest is like, I spy with my two eyes something blue. And so I'm like, the sky. And we're just going on for a while, and she's finally like, no, it's the road. And I'm like, the road is not blue. <laughs> and she goes, it is blue. And I'm like, it's not blue. And, and then she's like, I go, look at the sky. And she goes, okay. And I go, is this, does, does the road and the sky <laughs> is, look like the same color? And uh, she was like, the road is blue. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> so I said, I got this. I spy with my two eyes something white. And then she's guessing for a while, and I point to a black knob, and she's like, that's not white. I'm like, it's as white as the road is blue, Joey. <laughs> but the reality is, is she will argue with me. I mean, my oldest is an arguer. She will argue that she is correct, and I'm just like, man, how foolish is that, that we do stuff like this when God's word explicitly says it? Do we know this? God is good, and that he loves us like crazy, and the stuff that he's written to us is written from a heart of absolute, total, complete goodness. Or do we like the full say, no, I'm good, thanks. Verse five, I think, starts to set up our second type of fool. And here's the thing. I think this second fool is much harder to identify, much harder to spot. And I think can do a lot more danger because externally you look the part, but internally your heart is far from God. And in fact, the, 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 the people that Jesus actually calls fools and a brood of vipers are the religious elite. And I believe that this second group, which actually Paul says, remember, Paul's saying, get out the leaven. It's bad. Get out the folly. Get out the foolishness. Get rid of that stuff. And he, and he at first addresses the first fool. That's black and white. The second one is there's the religiosity or a, a self-righteous type of foolishness that can exist. And Paul says in, in Galatians 5, he says, you were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This 
Persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. Have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view. And the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. This is another type of leaven. And I believe that that the preacher setting it up, starting in verse 5, and I believe Jared Wilson says this. He says that the people that do the most damage to the church are the people that think they're the most awesome. And I think that's true. And I think there's another type of fool, and it's the fool that the preacher setting up here. Let's read verse 5, 6, and 7. There is an evil that I've seen under the sun, as it were an error proceeding from the ruler. Folly is set in many high places, and the rich sit in a low place. I've seen slaves on horses and princes walking on the ground like slaves. Context is important. Initially, when we read that, we go, yes, good. That's a good thing. The rich sit in low places. Let's humble the rich a little bit. And you've seen slaves put on horses. That's great. But you have to understand here that rich actually here means just the hardworking, faithful, steady person. It's actually not a person of prosperity. It's actually the person in their life who's a hardworking, steady, and stable person. Proverbs actually tells us that. We have two verses up there. Proverbs 10.4 and Proverbs 28.20 both talk about the, the rich in context to being someone who is faithful. And so if we read this, we have to understand that when he says folly is set in many high places and he goes, uh, and the rich sit in a low place, he's saying that, that, that I've seen the hardworking, faithful and steady man and woman just, be, uh, just sit in a low place. And then he says, I've seen the slaves. We have to understand this. We, we, we cannot read this through a lens, an anachronistic lens where we look from our culture back through. We have to read it from how they would have understood it. And, and this is not talking about the atrocity of American slavery that took place. Actually, slaves here means a prisoner of war, or it means a criminal. So I have seen slaves on horses, meaning that that, that I've seen guys that are criminals, guys who are prisoners of wars on, on horses, and princes walking on the ground like slaves. He's like, I've seen that. Why is he saying this? Because he's going to end to this next section and tell you something like this, that just so you know, being a hard working, faithful chap does not secure you a, 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 a very peaceful, cush life. In fact, he's going to say that you can be hardworking and you can be faithful. You can be stable. You can be a steadfast follower of Jesus Christ, but just know that, that you are not immune and really difficult things are going to happen to you. It's not a popular thing. I often wonder for people that preach a prosperity gospel, if they just completely avoid Ecclesiastes altogether. Because it's, it's, it's actually blowing up a prosperity gospel because what he's saying here is all of this stuff happens to really good people and really bad people too from, 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 from a human standard. Look, verse eight, he who digs a pit will fall in it and, and a serpent will bite him who breaks through a wall. What's that mean? To just know that if you're out digging a pit, you're just as susceptible to falling in the pit that you dug as anyone else. And also know, just because you're a good person, that if you punch through a wall or reach through a wall, that that serpent on the other side of the wall will bite you just as much as it will anyone else. The serpent bites kings and the serpent bites servants. The serpent shows no partiality. That's what he's saying here. That you can't live like you're immune because you do really good things or you're a really good person or that's how you would identify yourself. 
This is the second category of, of, of being a fool. And he goes on to say that he who quarries stones, in other words, the mason is hurt by being a, a, a mason. And he who splits logs is endangered by them. So for, for, for those that do masonry or for those that log, just know this. You can be a hard worker. You can be a good person. But that does not make you immune to getting hurt by the work you're doing. You're going to get slivers. You're going to get calluses. The stones are going to fall on your feet just like anyone else. And every time something bad happens to us, please do not think this. Oh, something bad happened to me. That's karma. I stubbed my toe. Satan's out to get me. Something bad happened to me, but here's where the fool comes in. God's out to get me. God's out to get me. God is displeased with me. Or to take that even further, something bad happened to me. How in the world could God be mad at me? How in the world could God do this to me? And I believe he's saying that this, these things is, is the result of living inside of a world that's fallen and that's sinful, and that's broken, is we don't like these things because we long for heaven on earth. He goes on to say in in verse 10, that if the iron is blunt and one does not sharpen the edge, he must use more strength, but wisdom helps one to succeed. What's he saying? Don't worry if you're looking at how many verses I've covered and how many we have left. I'm not going to get through them all. So what's he saying? That for some people, what we do is if things are going wrong in our life, we try harder. Man, I really want this. I want to have a baby. I want to have a spouse. I want to have a relationship. I want to have an education. I want to buy a home. I want all these things. And so since I want these things or something big is coming up in my life, it doesn't quite seem to be working out. So what I'm, what I'm probably doing wrong is that I need to work and try harder. Just really dig in. And in fact, what he's saying here is it's actually more wise to sit back and sharpen your sword and sharpen your tools and rest because you can do more with a sharpened tool than you can with a dull blade from you just keep just plowing on through and keep on going. And, I, and in fact, I'd say this is that the wise farmer does this. Two farmers step out and they look at the same plot of land, a wise man and a fool man. And when they step out and they look at the field, the fool looks at all that needs to be done and all the tasks and all the hours from uh, uh, sun up to sundown that, that needs to be completed. The wise man steps back and he looks at the field and sees how much rest is required to do it well. The wise man looks at the field and says, that's a lot. That's going to require a lot of rest for my soul if I'm actually going to do it well. And that's what he's saying here. Is this actually more wise to not, don't, don't be a fool and think, man, I just really got to dig in. And then he goes on to say that verse 11, if the serpent bites before it's charmed, there's no advantage to the charmer. What's that mean? You, that you can work really hard as snake charmers do with a really risky job, but that thing can bite you just like anyone else. And when it does, no more paychecks. Our jobs there's people that came here last week that maybe had a job and don't this week. There's people that came here in a different state of mind with a different life and, and different things going on. It doesn't look the same this week. Why? Because the serpent bites. And sometimes it bites before we've done any work. No one's immune. I think I can say all this and say, I know, and, and you guys might say, I know, we get it, we get it. That these things happen to anyone, but here's the reality is I think that we believe more in a prosperity gospel than what we would be willing to admit. And what I mean by that is this, 
is that so often I know and I hear people that are frustrated because they understand and they look at and they see all the work that they've done and all the goodness that they've done and they are frustrated with God for what God has not done for them. Honestly, I believe that, 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 this, that this second fool is the person who rejects Jesus just as much as the first fool. How? Because you look at all Christ has done and completed and finished in his perfect finished work and his life, death, and his res- resurrection, and you say, that's not enough. I need to do more. And then you get exhausted and you're burnt out from doing more because you think that you're doing, listen, here, please listen. You think that you're doing and your prayer life and, and, and the things you're accomplishing, good things, but you think that those things that you're doing are actually earning you a successful life and blessing from God. And then when things go awry and just everything hits the fan, you go, what in the world is going on? Man, I've provided, I've worked hard, I read my Bible, I do these things, and then he's just trying to say, man, haven't, haven't I told you? I love, God's love is not secure by what we do for him, but by what Christ has done for us. I'm not going to, I'm out of time, so I'm not going to finish what the last section is and, and the foolishness that comes through our mouth, but scripture has a lot to say with how we use our mouths. I'll wrap up with saying this, that sadly, I, I, I wish for, for the first and second fool, but especially for the second, I believe that the second fool feels entitled and we have entitlement issues. And I believe that we do feel like we deserve things. I love you. Is it euphoria? Euphor, euphoria chocolate? Euphoria, some people are nodding. Mm-hmm. I love euphoria chocolate. Horrible, horrible uh, slogan or whatever. It says, you deserve this. I love Busy Jeans Donuts. You deserve a donut. Everything in our culture is feeding us this lie. This is what you deserve. You're awesome. And what it does is it produces an entitlement in us that we believe this is what we deserve. Do you, what, what if we actually adopted a, bi- a biblical perspective on what we deserve? then maybe we would do what, what I think what the preacher's telling us to do is maybe we'd actually start to be people who find really a, a ton of joy in really small and simple things, like a cup of coffee, like waking up to a new morning, like having a friend we can talk to, like having children that are healthy. The, our problem is, is that we actually don't believe what the Bible says about us. What the Bible says is that we were dead in our trespasses. What do dead people do? Nothing. We were dead in our sins, dead in our trespasses. When God called Lazarus, when Jesus called Lazarus out, out of the grave, he said, Lazarus, come out. Can you imagine if Lazarus came out and he was like, it's about time. It's about time. I've been in there for three or four days and I'm frustrated because it's not, it, 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 it's, it's a bad day out right now. What do dead people do that are brought back to life? They go, oh my goodness, I don't deserve to be alive right now. And for the child of God who's put his faith and trust in Jesus Christ, a better perspective and a better view is to actually go, I don't deserve anything good. Breath in my lungs, water to drink, all the things in life are actually a gift that I'm not deserving of. But the greatest gift I'm not deserving of is for God to give me his love provided through faith in Jesus Christ. It should actually change our perspective. Our problems in marriages come from entitlement and deserving. Well, I don't deserve this. I don't deserve this. What if both of us were like, hey, I think we both kind of deserve hell based upon our rebellion against God. And he chose not to give us that based upon faith in Jesus Christ. It would change our perspective. Close with this, the gospel. We say, I want to be elevated, taken to a high place for what I have done. 
That's what we say. I want to be elevated, lifted up, taken to a high place. I want people to see the work that I've done. Do you know that Christ was elevated and he was taken to a, a, a high place? Called the cross for everything we have done. When we lose sight of our perspective and view, I hope we'll remember what Christ's view was at the end of his life. If there was one person in this world that deserved to be entitled and say, I don't deserve this, Christ had full, full entitlement because he lived a perfect life to say, I don't deserve this, but he wasn't up on top of the cross hanging there saying, I don't deserve this. What was he doing? Pleading for our forgiveness because we don't deserve it. Offering the full love and grace and acceptance of God. Christianity is not a message of if you do this and do it well, you get God. The wise person knows this, that everyone in this room and myself included has been a fool. Either the first fool or the second fool, we have just flat out rebelled against what God has told us to do, or we have believed that somehow that we are saving ourselves. And Christ died for foolish people. Up on the up on the screen is Titus 3, 3 through 7. I'm, I'm not going to read it because we're wrapping up. But I'll say this. Is that Titus 3, 3 through 7 explains the gospel explicitly. But then it says that we once were fools, but that's no longer who we are. Why? Because God has placed his spirit inside of us. And I would say in, in closing, is my prayer this week, and I would encourage it to be you, your prayer as well, is Lord, help me not to be a fool. Help me not to have wandering eyes because I've tried it and it doesn't satisfy. Lord, help me not to, to judge the person with wandering eyes and think I'm better than them because I don't have wandering eyes. That's also foolishness. Lord, help me not to be a fool. Help me not to reject what you've laid out clear. But at the end of the day, we thank Jesus Christ for saying, thank you for dying for such a fool. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time and for our time together. We thank you for the gospel. We thank you that you died, Jesus, for foolish people. And that you've reconciled us and that you've placed your spirit inside of us. And you've given us a community to call us out on our foolishness. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.